Hello, I'm Carol Vorderman, and the only thing worth listening to in a weekday afternoon these days is Jodcast. Here it comes. The Jodcast. A girl's second best friend. With Megan Argo, John Field, Jen Gupta, Libby Jones, Evan Keane, Ian Morrison, and Mark Perver. The Jodcast. September 2011 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm Jen and joining me today are Mark and Evan. Hi guys. Hi. Hello. Got Pulsar surrounding me. Lucky you. Lucky me. Now before we get started on the show, I'd like to apologise to anyone who's tried to access the forum recently or has been having website problems. Unfortunately, we've been having server issues and various machines have been taken offline for maintenance and that's affected the forum, but hopefully that's being fixed soon and might even be back by the time the show goes out. We should also welcome Evan back, because I think this is your first show since leaving us in Manchester. It is indeed. So how are you finding it in Bonn? Um, Bonn is very nice. But no Jodcast. But it pales in comparison to being here in the Jodcast studio. Yes, is it good to be back? It's brilliant to be back. So in the show this time, we have interviews about galaxies and pulsar planets. And we find out what you can see in the September night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, supernova spotted in the Pinwheel Galaxy, the discovery of antimatter in the Earth's Van Allen belts, and a planet darker than coal. August 24th saw the discovery of one of the closest supernovae of its kind in recent years. Located in the nearby spiral galaxy M101, the explosion was reported by the Palomar Transient Factory, a survey of the sky which aims to detect and catalogue transients using two telescopes at the Palomar Observatory in California. Catalogued by the PTF collaboration as PTF11KLY, the position of the supernova was distributed rapidly through the astronomers' telegrams, allowing follow-up by other astronomers using a variety of telescopes across the electromagnetic spectrum. With transient events like supernova, such rapid follow-up with other telescopes is extremely useful in trying to understand the physics of what happens in the explosion. Comparatively little is known about the first few hours to days of supernova evolution, since they are often discovered days and sometimes weeks after the initial explosion. In the case of PTF11KLY, also catalogued as SN2011FE, the event was spotted very early in its evolution, as the brightness was still increasing, and spectroscopic observations by the Liverpool Telescope in the Canary Islands quickly showed that this particular event was of the class known as Type 1A supernovae. This kind of event is thought to be caused by a thermonuclear explosion on the surface of a white dwarf in a binary system, although there are variations in the theoretical models which detailed observations could help to resolve. This particular supernova is the closest example of a Type 1A event in almost 40 years. This is significant because it is the type of supernova which is used to measure the expansion of the universe, so having a good understanding of the underlying physics of these explosions is essential for cosmological studies. Since it was discovered so early in its evolution, PTF11KLY should continue to brighten over the next few days before it begins to fade. At discovery, the object had a magnitude of 17, but was brightening rapidly. Located in M101, the pinwheel galaxy in Ursa Major, it is estimated that the supernova could become bright enough to spot with binoculars or a small telescope. In contrast, observations carried out with the Very Large Array, a collection of 27 radio telescopes located in New Mexico, showed no radio emission from the supernova. This is not surprising, as so far no Type 1A supernova has ever been spotted by radio telescopes, despite numerous searches. 
Telescopes of various types will continue to monitor this supernova as it evolves over the following months, and astronomers will use the data collected to test various aspects of the physics and chemistry of supernova models. Antimatter is often thought of as something that is only created in particle accelerators, or that only exists in science fiction movies, but it is actually present in small quantities throughout the universe. Now a team of researchers have detected the presence of naturally occurring antimatter right here in the neighbourhood of the Earth. This population of antiparticles originates from cosmic ray interactions in the Earth's upper atmosphere, where they are subsequently trapped in the planet's magnetosphere. Antiprotons can be produced in a number of ways, through cosmic rays interacting with the interstellar medium, the natural decay process of some types of particles from our own atmosphere, or in cosmic ray air showers from high-energy particles impacting on the atmosphere. Although most of the antiparticles would annihilate with their normal counterparts fairly quickly, especially at lower altitudes where the density of the atmosphere is higher. The existence of antiprotons around the Earth was predicted many years ago, but predictions differ, and experiments on board both Salyut 7 and the Mir space station only succeeded in placing upper limits on their abundance. The antiprotons found by the Pamela satellite are located in the Earth's Van Allen belts, donut-shaped regions defined by the Earth's magnetic field. The magnetic field lines trap charged particles, resulting in regions with a high density of positively charged protons, and others with a relatively high density of antiprotons. Launched from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in 2006, Pamela is designed to detect cosmic particles with energies between tens of mega-electron volts and hundreds of giga-electron volts. Pamela's orbit takes it through the area known as the South Atlantic Anomaly, the region where the Van Allen belts pass closest to the Earth's surface. Since it began operations in 2006, Pamela has detected antiprotons at a rate more than 1,000 times higher than that expected from galactic sources. The researchers say that this implies a belt of antiprotons located between two belts of ordinary matter in the Earth's Van Allen belts. The signal detected by Pamela is 10,000 times stronger inside the South Atlantic anomaly than it is outside the Earth's radiation belts, and thousands of times stronger than that expected from galactic cosmic rays. The likely explanation, say the researchers, is that the Earth's Van Allen belts are acting in the same way as they trap protons, trapping the antiprotons in a layer around the Earth, at least until they encounter a particle of normal matter and annihilate. Although antimatter is pretty destructive stuff if it comes into contact with ordinary matter, luckily for orbiting spacecraft, there isn't that much of it. In 850 days of data acquisition, Pamela's detectors collected just 28 antiprotons in the previously unknown antimatter region of the inner Van Allen belts. Stars are bright because they generate heat and light through nuclear fusion processes in their cores. Planets are visible because they reflect some of that light. The percentage of light that is reflected, a quantity known as a planet's albedo, varies depending on the nature of the planet's surface and its atmosphere. Jupiter, with its thick bands of highly reflective cloud, has an albedo of 52%, while the Earth's is somewhat lower, only reflecting around 37% of the sunlight which falls on its surface. But now, a duo of astronomers have discovered a planet with an exceptionally low albedo, reflecting just 1% of its host star's light, making it less reflective than coal. The planet, discovered by the Transatlantic Exoplanet Survey, is known as Trace 2b, and lies about 750 light-years away in the constellation of Draco. David Kipping of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics and David Spiegel of Princeton University use data from the Kepler Space Telescope to investigate the planet's nature. To calculate its albedo, the astronomers measured its brightness at two different points in its orbit around the host star, once when it was located directly between us and the star, and again when it was on the far side, just before it went into eclipse. 
The difference between the two measurements is therefore the difference in brightness between the day and night sides of the planet, and tells us how much of the star's light is reflected by the surface of Trace 2b. The planet orbits its star at a distance of just 5 million kilometres, far closer than Mercury is to the Sun. Mercury is a dense rocky planet with a large iron core and a rocky silicate surface which has an albedo of 12%. Surface temperatures on the closest planet to the Sun range between 90 and 700 degrees Kelvin. In contrast, Trace 2b, an exoplanet in the category of hot Jupiters, shows brightness variations of just 6.5 parts per million, corresponding to an albedo of less than 1%. The authors also calculate that there is significant emission coming from the day side of the planet. Its proximity to its host star means that its surface temperature is likely to be around 1,000 degrees Kelvin, and any atmosphere it has will likely be composed of chemicals such as vaporised sodium and potassium or gaseous titanium oxide. Such a hot temperature also means that the planet actually emits some of its own light, possibly glowing dimly red like an electric bar heater. The Kepler satellite is designed to search for planets using the transit technique, observing one densely packed star field for its entire operational lifetime, searching for tiny fluctuations in brightness of a star due to a transiting planet. The exceptional sensitivity of Kepler's instruments has led to this particular discovery in just four months of data acquisition. In their paper accepted for publication in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, the researchers suggest that, over six years of continuous observation, the telescope may be capable of detecting planets with albedos as low as 0.1%. And finally, in 2007, the Allen Telescope Array began operations. Designed and constructed to participate in both conventional radio astronomy studies and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the array is jointly operated by the SETI Institute and the University of California. One of the goals is to observe planetary systems detected by the Kepler mission, searching for possible signals. However, in April 2011, funding shortfalls for operations at the Hat Creek Radio Observatory where the ATA is located resulted in the array being put into hibernation. After launching the SETI Stars campaign in June, an appeal to supporters to help raise the $200,000 needed to get the telescope back online, thousands of people from around the world have made donations, and operations are now due to restart in September. Thanks for that, Megan. And now, here's Jen and Libby talking to Dr. Martin Bureau all about galaxies. We're here today with Dr. Martin Bureau from Oxford University. Welcome to the Jogcast again. Thank you. So you were on the Jogcast last in August 2007, which is way before we were on the Jogcast, <laughs> so you're an old hand at this. Um, today you've been in Manchester talking about molecular gas in early type galaxies in the local universe. So... Before we get onto that, could we just talk a little bit about the conventional understanding of galaxies? What do most people think of when we talk about galaxies? Yes, absolutely. And it's good to be back on the podcast. So um, I guess usually, you know, galaxies are essentially classified by the way they appear visually. And uh, usually they come in in two big categories that are called uh, uh, late types and the early types, which is uh, what, you know, what I was referring to in the title of my talk. But um, perhaps some of your listeners are, are familiar with what's called the Hubble sequence, which is essentially just arranging the galaxies again visually or morphologically by their simple appearance and their shapes. And the late types corresponds to what people know as the spiral galaxies and their uh, disk galaxies, which means that they're flat and they look very much like an old record. Um, so they're flattened because the stars and the gas rotate rapidly, uh, just like the solar system, in fact. 
Uh, and so these are the late-type galaxies. Now, the early-type galaxies correspond to the elliptical galaxies that, just as the name implies, have uh, an elliptical shape. So they're round-ish, right? A little bit flattened, but not totally flat, like in all records. So they really look a little bit like a, like a balloon. And in fact, uh, the reason they have this shape is exactly the same reason why balloons have the shape they have, is that the stars are um, supported by the pressure. Essentially, the stars move in all kinds of different directions, just like the uh, the atoms of gas uh, in a balloon. And so we have the late types and the early types corresponding to the spiral galaxies and the uh, elliptical galaxies. So I sometimes get a bit confused when we talk about early and late types. So early type galaxies are the kind of galaxies you found in the early universe a long time ago, and the late ones are the ones you find closer to us? Uh, not necessarily, actually. <laughs> so, in fact, the word you know, early type versus late type is totally wrong. I think originally it was thought that uh, morphologically the galaxies should evolve, essentially, from being ellipticals, uh, and therefore early, the first ones to appear, towards being uh, spirals. But now we know, in fact, that if there is evolution, it's in the opposite direction, so that you start with the late-type galaxies with the spirals that are uh, not very massive, uh, and that uh, as galaxies evolve, uh, they uh, evolve both for uh, so dynamical reasons, so kind of a bit like a, uh, I guess the analogy would be, you know, crowd dynamics. You know, when you have a lot of people together, they tend to behave differently than when they're alone. It's the same thing for stars. You have instabilities that develop, and the galaxies can change their shape internally, and they will tend, spiral galaxies would tend to become elliptical. Uh, and equally, if two spiral galaxies merge together, so you take two small things and you crash them together, they will form an elliptical galaxy and therefore an early type. So we think, in fact, that generally in the universe, that's the way that most galaxies evolve is by merging to form larger uh, galaxies. And so galaxies would go from being late types, i.e. spiral galaxies, to early types, the elliptical galaxies. So uh, the use of early type and late type now is purely for historical reasons. We know that, it, it well, largely it's meaningless, really. <laughs> and so your talk then was on local early type galaxies. So could you explain what these galaxies are? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, local first is because they're they're nearby, right? So they're not very far away. Obviously, far by you know terrestrial standards, but not very far by um, astronomical standards. So probably many of your listeners would be familiar with the Andromeda Galaxy, for example. That's obviously the closest giant galaxy to us—a galaxy that's very similar to our Milky Way. The galaxies I was talking about would be anywhere from uh, a few times the distance of Andromeda to um, a bit less than 100 times the distance. So by astronomical standards, it's really quite close. It's our galactic neighborhood uh, or extra-galactic neighborhood. All these guys are in our local supergroup then? Absolutely, yeah, that's right. The local supercluster. And so so that was the, the local. And then the early types is because I was mostly looking at elliptical uh, galaxies and also the transition uh, between elliptical and spirals that we call lenticulars. But you know we don't really need to go into that dis- distinction now. And early-type galaxies are commonly referred to being red and dead. Can you tell me a bit what that means? Yeah, that's that's right. That's a, a very common expression. So, um, as you know, red is, is a color, right? And color traces temperature. So red is 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 cool, right? That's a bit contrary to our usual experience on Earth, where we associate, you know, blue with being cold because of ice, and red of being warm because of fire. But of course, in physics, it's the opposite. And, you know, as you know, if you look at the candle, actually, the warmest part, which is the part near the, the thread, is actually blue, right? So uh, early-type galaxies are 
are, are said to be red and dead, the red bit means that the stars are cool and therefore probably very old. All the hot stars are already dead because uh, they tend to be very massive and have very short lifetime. Um, when I give public talks, I all, often say that the these very massive stars are rock stars, not because they're made out of rock, but because they essentially live very shortly and go out with a big bang, essentially. <laughs> um, and so, so elliptical galaxies are red and dead. They're red because they're old, and they're dead because they're not currently forming stars. Uh, and so star formation, so the birth of new stars, is generally thought to be to be over, essentially, in these galaxies. So they're not really creating new generations of stars. That's very different, for example, uh, in the Milky Way, where we know that in the spiral arms, uh, we see a lot of these blobs of star formations. And so these galaxies, spiral galaxies, are much bluer. So, yeah, in summary, ellipticals are, are red and dead because they're old and not uh, forming new stars. But you found molecular gas in these galaxies that you're looking at. So does that contradict what we know about these galaxies? Uh, possibly, and that's a little bit the whole point of the exercise of, of you know, essentially trying to answer those questions. So by molecular gas, first I should say that Obviously, it's gas that's formed by molecule as opposed to atomic species. For example, the most important uh, molecule we think exists in the universe is molecular hydrogen, so two hydrogen atoms uh, attached together. Hydrogen is, of course, the most abundant element in the universe, so it's natural that molecular hydrogen would be the most uh, common molecule. But it turns out that molecular hydrogen is very hard to observe because it's very hard to uh, excite that molecule and make it emit light. So what we use to observe it is actually carbon monoxide, so the CO, just like uh, we find a lot in the uh, in the Earth atmosphere. And so the reason I st I studied molecular gas is because uh, molecules tend to form only when the gas is very dense, i.e. there's a lot of molecules or atoms to start with close together. So if the gas is, is tenuous, it's not very dense, the atoms will happily stay separate. But if you push them close enough together, they will bind and form molecules. And so we know that stars are born, essentially, where the gas is very dense, where gravity is very strong. And so we think that stars are born in molecular gas as opposed to atomic gas, which would be much more tenuous. And so as you, as you were implying there, it's a bit surprising. Well, essentially, maybe I can rephrase. If you have molecular gas, you would expect to have star formation because that means you have very dense gas. And so we usually talk of molecular gas as being the fuel reservoir for star formation. And uh, so the question in these early types, red and dead galaxies, was, you know, if they're not forming stars, presumably we shouldn't expect them to have molecular gas. But when we did look, we found a lot of it, which is quite surprising. How did you look to trace this molecular gas in these early type elliptical galaxies? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, well, we look with telescopes, uh, but with a particular kind of telescopes, it turns out, uh, you know, based on basic physics, that molecules, the light we see comes from uh, essentially what we call vibrational modes. So when a molecule uh, vibrates, essentially it emits light uh, at specific frequencies, and those frequencies happen to be uh, in the uh, hundreds of gigahertz regime, which maybe it's easier to understand talking of wavelengths, which would be here a few millimeters. So essentially, uh, these molecules vibrate at the same frequencies uh, that your microwave oven does. And that's not surprising because a microwave is made to cook water. And water is a basic molecule, not, you know, not unlike CO. It has uh, vibrational modes, so it emits light in very similar frequencies. So in fact, we're observing frequencies or, or wavelengths that are very similar to that used in a microwave oven. And the way we do that is to use telescopes that are specifically designed to detect these wavelengths. So... Um, most listeners are probably familiar with optical telescope that just like 
like a telescope, you could buy the corner shop, but much bigger, of course, for astronomers. And with uh, radio telescopes, such as the one here at George Bank Observatory, uh, millimeter telescope is somewhere in between. They use a technology that's very similar to radio telescopes, so they look like satellite dishes. But because the wavelength is only a few millimeters, the surface of the telescope has to be very good, right? It has to be polished quite accurately, obviously, to a fraction of the wavelength, so much better than a millimeter. So you need to have this, this shape, this paraboloid shape, to be very accurate. Uh, and the detectors are fairly similar to the ones used in radio telescopes. So essentially, the basic millimeter telescope would look like a, a rather big satellite dish, but generally much smaller than the large radio telescopes that people are used to see. So you look at these galaxies and you see molecular gas. Do you also see stars? Do you see this evidence for star formation there? Well, we see old stars. I mean, that's how these galaxies were, were identified to start with. You know, that's how they were put in the Hubble sequence and why we label them as early type uh, or ellipticals. Then when we look uh, with those millimeter telescopes to look for carbon monoxide, so CO, in order to trace this molecular hydrogen that we think is very abundant, uh, we find that about a quarter, roughly, of these early type galaxies have a substantial uh, molecular gas reservoir. And by substantial, I mean they're something of order 10 to 100 to occasionally a billion times the mass of the sun worth of molecular hydrogen. And so um, these are obviously huge numbers. Um, compared to the total mass of these elliptical galaxies, however, it's not that large. The stellar mass, or the mass in stars in these galaxies, would be typically about 100 times larger. So only about 1% of the mass of these galaxies is constituted by molecular hydrogen. Um, nevertheless, it was surprising because in most of them, uh, we don't see any new stars. Uh, now the question is, how hard do you look? You know, and so if we look a bit harder, we do find that some of them have uh, new stars. And then the question is, you know, given you know x amount of molecular hydrogen, do you get the right amount predicted of young stars? And in many of those, we think we don't find enough, which suggests that the way that stars are forming might be different than in spiral galaxies, for example, where these processes are fairly well understood. Just for comparison to our own spiral galaxy, the Milky Way, how much molecular gas would be in our galaxy compared to the elliptical galaxies that you're measuring? Yeah, so if memory is good, it's about a billion times the mass of the sun in molecular hydrogen in the Milky Way. In fact, a few times this. So um, our best detections, if you want, the most exciting galaxies we detected, the ellipticals, would have about the same amount. But of course, in a relative manner, that's much less because the mass in stars in elliptical galaxies is much larger than that in the Milky Way, by at least a factor of 10, sometimes more. And our typical detection, so the average elliptical, would have probably 10 times less molecular hydrogen than the Milky Way. So, you know, 10 times less molecular hydrogen for 10 times more stars means that as a ratio, they have 100 times less. So per unit mass, they would have 100 times less molecular hydrogen. Can I just go back a step? So we were talking about detecting carbon monoxide, but then talking about mass of molecular hydrogen. So is there a relationship between the carbon monoxide and the hydrogen that you get the mass from the carbon monoxide? Ah, uh, yes. Or is that too complicated? <laughs> uh, well, it's, I'm not sure complicated is the right word, but it's certainly hotly debated. So um, indeed, the idea is that for, you know, every, let's say, molecular hydrogen uh, molecule, so you have X number of carbon monoxide. Now, as I mentioned before, um, hydrogen is the most common element in the universe. Uh, then you have, of course, lots of helium and so on. And carbon and oxygen is mostly processed into stars, right? So clearly you need to have had stars to generate 
these so-called metals, is what astronomers call them, anything <laughs> more massive than helium. Uh, but anyway, these heavy elements. And so we know essentially how many carbon monoxide molecule we have per uh, hydrogen or molecular hydrogen molecule in the Milky Way. So we can determine this fairly well based on a, on a fairly long chain of arguments that I don't really want to get into. And in fact, <laughs> it's, it's, some parts are a bit nebulous to, to me, in fact. Um, but the point is that we know that number in the Milky Way, and then we just assume um, that the same is true in other galaxies. Uh, and that, of course, is a huge assumption, which is almost certainly wrong. But the whole question is, how wrong? You know, Are you a factor of two off, or are you a factor of 100 off? And we're pretty sure we're not a factor of 100, but we could be a factor of a few. So in fact, when I've talked about these masses, the implicit assumption I was making is that the so-called conversion factor, you know, as as good uh, astronomers call it, the X factor. <laughs> so the X factor is called the conversion factor uh, X because we don't have a clue what it is really. Uh, we assume it's in the same as the Milky Way. So if it were different, the numbers I just mentioned would be different as well. Uh, it's, and it's quite a large conversion. So for every molecular hydrogen atom, we think there's of order, uh, if memory is good, is 10 to the 20. Uh, Sorry, other way around. For every CO atom, there's 10 to the 20, uh, roughly, molecular hydrogen. Uh, it's a bit more complicated than that, that kind of order of magnitude. And so you can see that if we're off, we, we could be off by quite a lot. In these elliptical galaxies you've detected the molecular gas, do all of them have star formation occurring in them as well? Uh, no, and that's the surprising bit. So some of them do. When some of them, star formation proceeds in the way we expect based on our... Um, preconceived ideas, if you are, on, on spiral galaxies, on galaxies like the Milky Way. Um, and so some of them do seem to follow that th these preconceptions. Uh, you know, everything seems to be normal. Uh, but in a few of them, uh, there are indications that this is not the case. Now, you know, as I said, it always depends how hard you look. And of course, the problem is when you see that things might not be normal, you look harder, right? <laughs> and uh, so when you look harder and you try to quantify some of these numbers better, you see that the differences may not be hugely different, but there's definitely some uh, correlations uh, between different quantities. So, you know, uh, a bit like this conversion factor, if you want, that we think are a bit different. Um, this, this is a law that's called uh, the schmidt kennicott law, which is obviously based on some work by Schmidt and other work by Kennicott, <laughs> uh, as one might expect. That tells you essentially how much star formation you would expect given a certain amount of molecular hydrogen or of gas um, more generally. And uh, that correlation is very tight, meaning spiral galaxies seem to follow this empirical law very well. I say empirical because it's just observed, right? So we take a spiral galaxy, we check uh, in a given area how much star formation there is, we check how much molecular gas there is, and we plot them X versus Y on the plot, and we repeat the exercise, and all spiral galaxies seem to follow the same line. So the question then for ellipticals is, if you take a unit area, you measure how much star formation there is, you take a unit area, you check how much gas there is, do they follow the same line or not? And at the moment, actually, the surprising answer is yes. But the error bar, so the uncertainties we have on our points, is actually quite large. Uh, and so that's not a partially meaningful statement at this point. But there are other indications that we have that things are not not totally normal. Uh, in, in a bit a slight uh, astronomer jargon, there's a thing called the Farnfred radio correlation, which again is plotting on one axis uh, the radio flux, so what you detect with the radio telescope, and on the y-axis, the infrared flux, 
And again, usually galaxies follow a tight correlation there. And we're sure that the early type galaxies, the so-called red and dead galaxies, don't. They are, are much, um, don't have enough radio or too much infrared, depending on how you see things. Now, that may not sound very exciting for maybe your average listener, but for <laughs> astronomers, when you know that thousands of galaxies follow these relations very precisely, and then you find a few that systematically don't, that not only tells you that they're different, but you might actually be able to probe different physics by looking at this specific subset of objects. Again, I seem to keep on taking steps back. Um, where does this gas actually come from? Is it generated inside the galaxy, or does it come from somewhere else? Okay, well, very good question. <laughs> um, that's another question we've been trying to answer. Um, essentially, as you've mentioned, there, there are different um, possibilities for where the gas might come from. The obvious one is that uh, as gas, as sorry, as stars uh, evolve and die, they return a large fraction of their mass to the so-called interstellar mediums, so essentially to the space around them, right? And the um, obvious example of that are uh, planetary nebulae. Right, your listeners are probably familiar with those. The reason they look so nice is because the outer layers of the stars have been ejected, right, and they form these nice uh, ring-like uh, structures that are just essentially a sphere seen in projection on the sky. So this is a process by which many stars return uh, their mass. Of course, the more massive stars that live more shortly would return their mass through a supernova explosion, so an even more violent event. But certainly, most stars would return a large fraction of their of their mass over their lifetime and so this gas is returned to the galaxy right gravity will pull it together and you can have new generations of stars born of that gas now the particularity of the gas that is accumulated this way is that the gas will move the same way as the the parent stars do and so for example in terms of rotation if you think about the spiral galaxies the stars are going around so when they lose gas or when they return gas to the galaxy this gas will be moving around in the same way um, now, um, another possibility is for the gas to come from outside the galaxies to be accreted, we say, and it may be just like gas more or less raining down on the galaxy slowly from a reservoir that is currently unseen, but some people think it's there. Um, and another, uh, in my view, more likely possibility is that you could have smaller galaxies falling in, and small galaxies are usually very gas-rich. That is, the ratio of gas to stars is much larger in these galaxies. And we know that this happens. The Milky Way, for example, if you go in the southern hemisphere, you can see right, the so-called Magellanic Clouds with the naked eye. And these are satellite galaxies to our own, just like the, the moon orbits around the Earth. And so these two galaxies are in the process of slowly falling and being gobbled up by our own Milky Way. And so... Um, Essentially, if the same process happens on these red and dead galaxies, then you have a way to regenerate them. Right? A small galaxy falls in, it brings in a lot of gas, and then this gas can form new stars. Now, uh, as I've just implied, by the way, I said this gas would be accreted. This gas would not be rotating like the stars that are in the original galaxy, right? If you think about the Magellanic Clouds, they're arriving at some angle on the Milky Way and will not be rotating like the Sun. So the same process can happen in these early-type galaxies. And the key to diagnose, essentially, where the gas is coming from is to look at whether it behaves, right, whether it moves, like the stars of the parent galaxy. And that's a test that we've been trying to make in, these, in, in our own sample of, of elliptical uh, galaxy. I have a question. If the early-type galaxies are full of evolved stars and these emit the molecular gas, how come we don't see a much more molecular gas in these galaxies than what we do see? 
Uh, that's a very good question, <laughs> and I'm afraid I don't have the answer. So that's been a big mystery, in fact, since 30 years. Um, as you said, we would expect that there would be lots of gas in early-type galaxies just because stars continuously lose mass, right? Stars evolve, go in this planetary nebula stage, and return all of their mass to the interstellar medium. Um, the, the generally accepted solution is that this gas does not cool, meaning it, it doesn't become cold and very dense. It stays rather tenuous and hot, and that means it wouldn't form molecules. Uh, it would rem remain in an atomic form and would most likely become highly ionized, right? So it's so energetic that the electrons around the atoms are kicked out, essentially. Uh, if this gas would reach temperatures of about a million degree Kelvin, so or a million Celsius, if you want, um, we could detect it with so-called X-ray telescopes that are orbiting in space. Um, if it's of order 10 to the 4 or less, then it would become cool enough that we could detect it through normal optical telescopes, or if it's become very cold, through the molecular gas, for example. Um, but there is one uh, temperature range which we're not very sensitive to, and that's roughly around uh, 100,000 Kelvin, uh, and we just don't have very good instrumentation to detect uh, this gas, and its surface brightness, so its brightness on the sky, if you want, is, is quite low. That is very difficult to detect. So you can hide this gas around this temperature. So if the gas that the stars lose is, uh, for a reason or another, reaches a temperature of about 10 to the 5 Kelvin, or a few times this, then it would be very difficult indeed to detect it. And that's and so therefore, for astronomers, that's a good place to hide it at the moment. So you mentioned before that there's this theory that maybe spiral galaxies turn into elliptical galaxies. Does the detection of molecular gas in these um, early type galaxies, does that change what we think about galaxy evolution? Um, not so much that that basic uh, underlying paradigm, the, the kind of technical word is the hierarchical structure formation paradigm. And of course, hierarchical means exactly what, what it's meant to say, which is that it's hierarchical. So small things merge together to make bigger things, right? Small blobs merge and make bigger blobs. And at some point, it's big enough that you call it a galaxy. I think that paradigm or that idea is still probably generally right. Um, I suspect that the phenomenon that we're seeing is um, a fairly late one in the evolution of the universe, so that this big merging, right, these big blobs merging together to make even bigger blobs, that occurred mostly fairly early on in the life of the universe, at a, you know, in the few billion years at the beginning. These days, the universe is a much more quiet place, and so I think what we're seeing, often we say it's a sprinkling of young stars. So you, you have essentially your, your red and dead galaxy, and you just sprinkle on top of it a little bit of gas, as I said, it's a quarter of a percent or less. And then even if you were to turn this into stars, you're just changing the mass of the galaxy by about a percent, right? So you're not going to suddenly make an entirely new galaxy that looks different. So we're talking about a much more subtle mechanism. But having said that, it may well be the dominant mechanism today uh, that is quite late in the, in the evolution of the universe when this intense period of merging has largely ended. Thank you, Martin, for joining us on the Jogcast again. It's been great to interview and catch up on your research. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for that, Jen and Libby. And now for the main event, the Pulsar interview. Oh, yeah. This month, Mark spoke to our very own diamond geezer, Dr. Ben Stappers. Oh, so you'll all see in a minute or so why that's a really bad joke from Evan. Evan, you are now banned from saying anything for half an hour. You're in the naughty corner. 
Not only is this interview with our own Dr. Ben Stappers, it's also with PhD student Lena Levin. So let's go to that now. Stop the press. We've got late breaking news in this episode. It's uh, about a discovery that's been all over the media this week, and it comes from the world of pulsars. So to tell us about it, we've got Dr. Ben Stappers of the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics here in Manchester, and Lena Levin, who's a PhD student at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Australia. So I thought I'd start with Lena, and can you tell us what it is that's been discovered and why it's attracted so much attention? So we've discovered this um, pulsar binary system that has a companion that is a, is very light. Its um, mass is just a little bit um, more heavier than Jupiter's, and the size of it is so small that um, the density of the planet would be very high, and we think it's... Um, is made out of carbon, which then would mean that high density and the pressure on the on the planet would mean that the um, planet would be made of diamond. It's crystallized matter in the core of the planet. Okay, well, immediately I can see why it's attracted that attention then, mm-hmm. because with the, with the sort of astrophysicist cap on, I heard a dense companion of a pulsar, and with a kind of media hat on, I heard blah 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 diamond planet. So I'm guessing that's why it's been all over the yes. press. So you're studying in Australia. Yes. How is it that um, we kind of got this sort of joint discovery, uh, UK here and Australia? So um, we're doing a, a pulsar survey with the Parkes Telescope in Australia. Um, and it's a joint collaboration between um, astronomers in, in Australia, in the UK, in Germany and in the US. So we've been... Um, searching for pulsars in the southern sky, um, and we found this this one pulsar system within the survey that we're doing. So this system is not like any of the others that you've found then, or that have been found in previous surveys, really. I mean, I know uh, some planets have been found around pulsars before. So let's t- try and establish like how this system formed. You've you've got a pulsar. How does it end up with this thing around it that's sort of like a planet? but seems to be a bit denser. The theory of how a millisecond pulsar forms is that it starts out with a binary system with a pulsar and a, another massive star. The other star evolves, uh, it grows, and the, the pulsar will start um, accreting matter from the other, the other star. And with this matter, when it's accreted onto the pulsar, it spins up. So it's sort of feeding off it then? Yes. So in that case, let's say that the other star has had a lot of its matter accreted. What's then left at the end? How have you ended up with the thing that's there now? So um, what we think happens is that um, the uh, mass transfer from the companion star onto the pulsar, is, as Lena mentioned, it spins it up to these uh, millisecond rotation rates. And uh, it goes through a phase which we call an X-ray binary phase. And in that phase, we think that it's possible that the X-rays generated from the accretion process can also uh, ablate the companion star. So basically, it's losing mass in two different ways. It's it's losing mass through its uh, Roche lobe or its inner Lagrangian point uh, onto the pulsar. But then there is also a wind coming off the pulsar that can actually blow the material off the, the companion star. Okay. And so what we think has probably happened in this system is that that process has almost come to mean that 
the companion star disappeared entirely. So the theory is that the formation of millisecond pulsars that are on their own, so they have no binary companion, in that process, the companion star got completely obliterated. Mm-hmm. We know of these systems called Black Widow pulsars, where there is a very low mass of the order of 0.025 solar masses object, and um, they causes a- eclipses, um, and the Black Widow name comes because the pulsar pretty much killed its companion star. But it didn't completely kill it in those systems, of course. And what we think is in this situation is that we have a very extreme version of that. So it was almost that this companion star was completely wiped out. And so all we're left with is this one one thousandth of a solar mass or approximately a Jupiter mass object orbiting the pulsar. So the Roche lobe is telling us where the pulsar can take matter from the other object. Yeah, it's it's basically a an equipotential surface for gravity. So where gravity is equal between uh, being attracted to the pulsar and being attracted to the companion star. And so if material crosses this Roche lobe, then it's more attracted to the uh, to the pulsar than it is to the companion star okay. or the planet in this case. So what we've got with the companion is, is a white dwarf, or at least it was thought to have been a white dwarf. And they themselves are very dense and compact things. So if the pulsar is going to have been feeding off that, it must have, they must be very close together, I guess. Yeah, so the system, um, the orbital period is just 2.2 hours. And um, the orbital separation is uh, is so small that it fits entire, in, entirely inside the sun. So they are incredibly close, uh, close by. Uh, and so the, um, the companion star has you know, really felt the full force of the pulsar blasting away on it. And then the thing that's left, I was having a little read, and it was a density of about 23 grams per cubic centimetre. Yeah, that's a lower limit. Okay, so it's 23 or more dense. And and one gram per cubic centimetre is water. A normal white dwarf would be many, many times higher, something like a million. So this is something that's about twice as dense as lead, but as it's... uh, had its mass taken away, it seems to have become less dense. Does that sort of fit the picture of what's happened to it? Yeah, indeed. Um, we were actually just discussing this ourselves. As you mentioned, white dwarves have this extreme density because they have this uh, electron degeneracy pressure in the in the core, which is what supports them from collapsing any further. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not at that sort of density. So, so as the as the mass has been stripped away, this thing is uh, is has become you know significantly lower density object. Like I say, we only have a limit of this 23 because even though we know the radius of this object extremely well, uh, we don't have a constraint on its mass until we know exactly what the inclination am- angle of the orbit is. So whether it's edge on yes. or face on to exactly. So then I'm trying to go again with the media angle of it kind of being diamond. I mean, if, if it's um, not degenerate, then it's uh, obviously sort of in a normal form of matter. Would it be diamond as we would recognize it is it more dense than that could you mine it i guess people would wonder yeah that's a it's a very interesting question the issue we have is that we know that the white dwarf was a carbon oxygen white dwarf that's something we can work out from uh stellar evolution theory and so we know that what's left behind is going to be predominantly carbon with some oxygen and we know that if you put carbon under pressure and the high pressures, of course, you, you form diamond. What you get when you go to densities beyond diamond, that, uh, that is a much more open question. But there is 
uh, a working definition, <laughs> apparently, which uh, which exists on a, on a NASA webpage, uh, which suggests that when you get uh, any crystalline carbon structure, as far as we know, is going to be diamond-like. So that's the reason we christened this thing to be uh, a diamond planet, to suggest that even if you could go there and come back, um, whether it's worth doing that and mining it is... <laughs> Is a moot question, really, and uh, as we were discussing yesterday, uh, probably by the time you get back, diamonds aren't even that precious anymore. So. Ah, okay. But it does seem to be quite an efficient way of, of compressing carbon and making diamonds, which is what people try and do on Earth, I know, and they only really get tiny ones, other than in geological processes. Yes, exactly. Uh, in, in fact, if there was one nearby, then, you know, maybe that, that's an interesting thing, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I, I, it's not something that uh, we've thought about too deeply. No. <laughs> so if it's um, at this sort of density that it is, about twice the density of lead, but not really degenerate, so not being supported by this electron degeneracy pressure anymore, what is it that's binding it now together at that density? Is it the gravity or is that now too weak as its mass is lower? Again, I think I think it's basically, it is a combination of the mass constricted within this uh, this fixed radius. Um, and so you've ended up with, as I think you were mentioning before, this, this crystalline structure. So it's the, it's the rigidity of the crystalline structure that's obviously giving its form uh, as opposed to anything else. I mean, it seems to be robust to um, the impinging pulsar wind now. The reason we know that is that it would be extremely unlikely that we were catching the system just as it was about to disappear. You, you could anticipate that at this very low mass that the system is almost gone, right? If, if it was still being ablated, you're at the point of it disappearing. And that would be a very fluky thing that we found it because that episode in a lifetime of a millisecond pulsar, which lives for maybe a few billion years, mm. the fact that you catch it in a very short phase uh, when we only know about a, a, a couple of hundred of these objects, it's very unlikely that we would catch such a system. And so we believe it's in a stable situation now, which would suggest that, yes, therefore it is rigid. And the thing that you can imagine might be giving it its its rigidity would be the the crystalline nature of the of the structure. But I also should preface that by saying that I'm not a materials expert. Well, probably neither are most of the people that wrote the article about it, but didn't stop them speculating. <laughs> That's true. So you said it would be, it would have been very fluky to find it in a stage where it was on its way to being ablated, but clearly it's quite an unlikely system anyway, given that there's only been the one found. Do we know why the process of ablation or accretion stopped at that point and didn't go all the way to destroying it or why it's such a rare kind of system so i think what we think happens is that um there's a balance between the way that the material can flow uh onto the companion star is uh through this inner lagrangian point of the of the roche lobe and um of course as the pulsar gets spun up faster and faster it's wind becomes more powerful. So we think that what happens is that the, the rate at which mass is being accreted uh, must drop because the mass of the overall companion star is also dropping. And so you get a balance between the wind from the pulsar and the mass trying to fall through in, onto the pulsar. At that point, you, no more mass can basically accrete onto the system. Right. Um, there are some other possibilities of how mass accretion at a much slower rate can occur. But that was basically mean that the companion now will, will stay at that mass. Now, the big question is, and, and this has been the theory for since the very early 80s, is that even after that point, 
the wind of the pulse cycle potentially drive mass off the companion star. And we see that in the eclipsing binary systems that I was mentioning earlier, the Black Widow systems. We actually see evidence for material leaving the companion star. But it's not happening very fast. It's not happening at a rate which would destroy the companion in a Hubble time. And actually that's very unclear as to why it's so low, that, that loss of mass. And so we, we can understand why the mass transfer stops, but why the ablation stops um, or is less effective uh, is not clear. But maybe all of these objects actually have this really dense crystalline core at the, to them. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they're just so well bound by crystalline forces that you just can't drive a wind off them anymore after a while. Right. Well, just the last question I'll go to Lena for then. The actual survey that's been going on, I know there's been lots of surveys looking for pulsars in the past, but this one is seems to have been quite successful. So could you tell us a bit about what it covers and how many pulsars it's found and so on? Yeah, so we've um, now discovered 92 pulsars today and 20 of them are millisecond pulsars which is a, a fairly big part of them that are millisecond pulsars. The other previous surveys have found more normal pulsars to millisecond pulsars. And the, the things that we are doing now that couldn't be done before um, is we're having, we use a higher sampling rate and we have a wider bandwidth than previous surveys because we're using a digital filter bank system instead of the old analog systems. So you're more sensitive and so you can also yeah. pick up those really fast rotating yes, millisecond pulsars. Yes, and the ones that are further away. And um, maybe as a last, last question, how did you uh, notice then that it had a companion object? I don't think that's something that we actually discussed before. Um, so by looking at pulsars, doing a lot of observations of the same pulsar, you can look at the, the times um, of arrival of the each of the pulses of the pulsar and um, by seeing little modulations in in when the the pulses arrive at the telescope you can calculate the the doppler shift from the interactions with the companion okay so that sort of wobbling of the pulsar just gives it away yes well that's really interesting to see formation scenario that maybe only would have been in theoretical before actually having been played out so i hope you find a lot more interesting objects in that sort of zoo of pulsars thanks very much Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. And this story has only just come out at the time of recording and there's been quite a lot of press coverage. And Mark, I think you've got some wonderful quotes from various news outlets. Various news outlets have been picking up on a certain angle of this, which is that it's like a big diamond in space. And no less than CNN headlined it, a huge girl's best friend discovered in space, <laughs> which inspired the witty comment for this episode. And one of the sort of spokespeople for this result was Mike Keith, who used to be here at Jodrell. And now he is in Sydney. He said a lot of interesting things about this diamond planet, but my favourite was it would be suitable for an engagement ring for a giant alien. <laughs> 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 which I, I just don't know where he got it from. It's inspired, that's what it is. My favourite bit was the picture that the mirror had online, which was literally a giant picture of a diamond on top of stars. It had been crudely pasted. Yeah. (laughs) It had been beautifully cut as well, this diamond. Yeah. Maybe not entirely realistic, but we wouldn't want to cast aspersions. No. 
So moving on to the part of the show where we talk about all those other little bits and pieces that have been going on. And first of all, I've got a bit of a roundup of various space missions that have and haven't happened. On the 24th of August, the Russian Space Agency attempted to launch a Progress um, supply unmanned spacecraft. And unfortunately, things went wrong and it didn't reach the orbit it was meant to reach and it crashed back down to Earth. So the details of this aren't really clear. Um, People reported hearing a loud bang and windows were apparently blown out some distance away from where it supposedly came down, but they haven't actually found the wreckage yet at the time of recording. But it's meant that Russia has grounded its fleet of Soyuz rockets while they try to figure out what went wrong. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So the ISS is going to be not getting any supplies for a little while. Well, this is really unfortunate timing because it's the I think it's the first launch to the ISS since the space shuttle was retired. So it's not looking good, but the ISS does have supplies for another like six months or something. So the astronauts are going to be okay for now. The next flight that the Russians have scheduled is for the 22nd of September, which would be a manned mission, but they're not quite sure whether that's going to go ahead. And of course, recently we talked about one of the commercial companies that was being um, paid by NASA to try and develop new new spacecraft, and they're planning on trying to send a Dragon capsule to the ISS by the end of the year. So that's another option, but I think it's all very up in the air at the moment. The other spacecraft I've got to report on is NASA is planning to launch its next lunar mission on the 8th of September. So this is the Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory, or GRAIL, which Evan thinks is a bad name, right? Uh, That's because it's lame. (laughs) They probably spent a long time developing that acronym, you know. You mean you think somebody got paid for developing that name? I think it's a spare time procrastinating kind of activity myself. Let's not insult NASA. This mission is made up of two spacecraft that are going to orbit around the moon and they're going to send radio signals between them so they know really precisely how far away they are from each other and then as you go around the moon any local changes in the gravity will affect that distance will make it shorter or longer and I think from that they're going to try and figure out what's going on inside the moon. Cool. In October the Manchester Science Festival is taking place and the programme has now been released. One of the uh, things you can come and see at Jodrell Bank is Rocket Week from Monday the 24th of October to Friday the 28th of October, 10am to 4pm daily. And I might even be there launching rockets. <laughs> but it'll still be good. <laughs> well, well, maybe I'll be launching myself on a rocket. Who knows? And I think that's all free with normal entry, which is currently £5.50 for an adult and £4 for a child. Yep, no charge for entry or re-entry. That was a rocket joke. Sorry. That was that was really bad. <laughs> but there's also space stuff happening in Manchester for the Manchester Science Festival. So if you go and check out the website, then you can find out loads of details about those events. Now, Megan mentioned in the news the supernova that's recently been spotted in the M101 galaxy. But what she didn't say was that a lot of people have been taking quite nice images of it. And Evan, I think you have one in particular that you wanted to mention. The astronomy picture of the day on the 26th of August... It's a fantastic image taken by the Fox Telescope North. I think you should check it out. So hopefully there's going to be lots of people taking pictures of this supernova in the coming weeks. Unfortunately, you won't be able to enter them into the Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition this year, but you might be able to do it next year. This year's winners are apparently going to be live-tweeted 
by the Royal Observatory astronomers on the 8th of September from approximately 7pm British summer time. So you can follow the hashtag astrophoto11 if you want to know more about that. Or follow the Royal Observatory Greenwich astronomers who are ROG astronomers on Twitter. I'm backing the Daily Mirror's big diamond in space photo <laughs> for this one. Yeah, maybe next year. <laughs> and if you want to know what's up in the sky to take your wonderful astronomy pictures, here's Ian Morrison to tell you what's in the September night sky in the Northern Hemisphere. Well, September. You don't have to wait up quite so late for it to get dark. As you do throughout September, what you see in the sky after dark stays much the same because as the constellations move around the sky by about four minutes every day, which would tend to make you see other constellations at a given time, darkness happens a little bit earlier and the two tend to cancel out. So looking south after dark, we see that lovely region of sky with Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle, with their bright stars Deneb, Altair, and Vega. Vega is the upper right one. If you look at that with binoculars, and just move a little bit to the left, you should see a double star. It's called Epsilon Lyrae. Even without binoculars, if your eyesight is good, you might just pick it up visually. If, however, you then use a small telescope, under good seeing conditions, when the sky isn't too turbulent, you'll spot that each of those two stars is itself a double. So it's called the double-double. The two pairs of stars, one orbits about every 1,200 years, the other every 600 years, and the two pairs, in fact, orbit each other about once every million years or so. So that's quite a nice thing to have a look at. If you come down from Vega towards Altair, it's a dark, transparent night, you'll see there's a bit of a rift across the Milky Way because you're crossing over the Milky Way. It's called the Cygnus Rift. It's a region of dust which obscures much of the light from the stars beyond. But in that rift, you should pick up what's called Brocky's Cluster or the Coat Hanger, a little group of stars that looks like an upside-down coat hanger. Now, the reason I mention it this month is that at the very beginning of the month, 2nd and 3rd of September, a comet... Comet Garad, G-A-R-R-A-D-D, is actually very close to the cluster. Now, of course, you may well listen to this after the 2nd and 3rd of September, but over the next week or so, it's gradually moving westwards. That's to the right. So if you start with your binoculars on the cluster and just move gently rightwards, there's a good chance you'll pick it up. It's moving towards Hercules. Coming over... To the left of Cygnus, we come to the very nice constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, which we see upside down from the Northern Hemisphere. The four bright stars that make up the square of Pegasus give you actually a nice way of uh, telling how transparent the sky is. You simply count the number of stars you can see within it. If you can see four, perhaps five, you're seeing down to about four and a half magnitude. If you can see a lot more, your eyesight's very good and it's very transparent. Take some binoculars and start with the top rightmost of those stars. If you then move down, looking at the stars just to the right of the line, going from the top to the bottom on the right, the brightest star you'll pick up is called 51 Pegasi, it's fifth magnitude. It's a star like our sun. And it was where, 
in about 1995, Michel Mayer and his student discovered the first planet orbiting a sun-like star. To everyone's amazement, it was about half the mass of Jupiter, so a giant planet. But it was orbiting its star every 4.2 days. That implies, of course, it's very, very close and hence very hot, about uh, 1,200 degrees. We call these things hot Jupiters. Now, there's no way a planet like that can form so close to its sun. It must have formed way out somewhere where Jupiter is in our own solar system, but then worked its way in. And the vast majority of planets that have been discovered so far tend to be quite large and close to their sun. That's because they're easiest to detect. What we really want to know is how often we actually have planets that are the same sort of size as our Earth, orbiting in about a year, so they have the right sort of temperature to allow life to arise. Now there's a satellite called Kepler observing the stars between Cygnus and Lyra. It's already found quite a large number of Earth-sized planets, but having only published data from 127 days of observations, they've all got to be relatively close to their star. But over the next nine months or so, it's already got the data for more than a year. When it's observed for one year, it can start picking out planets orbiting with one-year orbit. After two years, it will have got them all. So we will soon know how often planets like our Earth at about the right distance from their star, so the temperature could support life, how common they are in our galaxy. And that's going to be very, very interesting. If you go to the top left star of Pegasus, it's shared with Andromeda. You move leftwards and up a little bit, one star, and then a second, a bit more to the right. Then you turn sharp right, move through one star, the same distance again, you should pick up the great nebula in Andromeda, M31, the nearest giant galaxy to us. Now, at the turn of the last century, there was a lot of debate as to whether objects they were then called white nebulae were actually part of our own Milky Way galaxy or lay beyond. It was Edwin Hubble in 1926 who was observing variable stars in the Andromeda galaxy, as we now call it he found a star which was varying with a period of just over 30 days. They're called Cepheid variables. And some years earlier, Henrietta Leavitt had studied these in the Magellanic Clouds and shown that one of these stars with a period of about 30 days would have a brightness about 10,000 times that of our sun. So estimating its brightness from its period, it's called the period-luminosity relationship, he was able to work out that Andromeda lay about 850,000 light-years from the Earth. At that time, they thought the galaxy was about 300,000 light-years across, so it was well outside the galaxy. Now, you'll obviously realise that both of those numbers are too small. In fact, there were two types of Cepheid variables, and the ones that Hubble had observed were in fact somewhat brighter, perhaps a factor of four, than those that Henrietta Leavitt had been observing, and that doubles the distance, and there were other factors too. So now we know that Andromeda is about two and a half million light years away. It's a lovely thing to see with a pair of binoculars. You really do want to have a night when there's no moon and the sky is nice and transparent.
Well, we've talked about the stars and some of the things we can see. What about the planets? Well, we're coming to a Jupiter season. It's now rising soon after 9 p.m. And by midnight, it's about 30 degrees above the eastern horizon. So not too bad to see. It's shining at magnitude minus 2.7, pretty bright, and it's in the constellation of Aries the Ram. The angular size is about 47 arc seconds, which means that when it's reasonably high in the sky, a small telescope will show lots of detail. And I'll come back to that in one of the highlights. Well, we've been observing Saturn for quite a few months. In principle, it is just visible during the first week or so of the month, just a few degrees above the horizon, about half an hour or so after sunset. But it'd be jolly hard to spot and probably not really worth the effort. We're going to have to wait for a while till it comes round the other side of the sun and we can see it in the pre-dawn sky. Well, Mercury, that passed between the Earth and the Sun, it's called inferior conjunction, on the 16th of August and emerged into the pre-dawn sky at the very end of August. On the 1st of September, it's just four degrees above the eastern horizon an hour before dawn and reaches its peak brightness at about magnitude minus 0.3. As we'll see in one of the highlights, it lies very close to Regulus in Leo on the 8th and 9th of the month but it then rapidly moves towards the sun and is lost in its glare. It passes behind the sun, that superior conjunction, on the 28th of the month. What about Mars? On the 1st of September, Mars, shining at magnitude plus 1.4, lies in Gemini, just one degree north of the star Delta Geminorum. It's risen to an elevation of about 30 degrees by sunrise, so you can see it in the pre-dawn sky just north of east. It's rising at about 4am and will have an elevation of 40 degrees at dawn later in the month. It's not very big yet, under 5 arc seconds across, so you're unlikely to see any detail on the surface. But it's nice to see its rather lovely salmon pink colour. Well, lastly, Venus. Venus passed behind the sun on the 15th of August. That's superior conjunction again. It actually reappears to view just above the horizon 25 minutes after sunset at the very end of the month. Even with a magnitude of about minus 3.9, you may well need binoculars to spot it. But of course, don't use them until after the sun has set. But over the next month or so, it'll become a prominent object in our evening sky. Well, finally, one or two highlights. I mentioned Jupiter. Well, a nice feature on Jupiter is the red spot. And in the highlights on the Night Sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, just put Night Sky into Google, I've listed some of the times when the red spot is actually facing us. For example, 11.35pm on the 9th, 10.40pm on the 14th and so on. So have a look there and it gives you a chance to know when you should see the red spot nicely visible facing you on the surface of Jupiter. We mentioned Mars which has been in Germany but it's moving across into Cancer and at the very end of the month on the 30th of September it's just 0.5 degrees west, that's to the right, 
of the rather lovely beehive cluster Pricipe in Cancer. That'll be a very nice thing to observe or even photograph. As I said, Mercury on September the 8th is just 1.3 degrees above Regulus in Leo. Actually, it's eight times brighter than Regulus, so that might be a nice little pairing to look at in the pre-dawn sky. You may have noticed in the news that there's a spacecraft called Dawn which is orbiting the asteroid Vesta. At the moment, it's at its closest to the Earth and it's one degree southwest, roughly, from the fourth magnitude star, Psi Capricorni. Its magnitude will be fading during the month from about 6.2 to 6.9, but if you find Psi Capricorni, then it is the nearest bright object to it, and basically it just moves during the month a little bit down to the right and then back up again. So it's quite a nice thing and an easy time to actually spot it. I'd like to mention Uranus. It reaches opposition. That's when it's due south around midnight on the 25th of September at a magnitude of 5.8. So you might just be able to see it with your unaided eye. It's in Pisces and it's below the left-hand side of the square of Pegasus, basically about 15 degrees below. I have put a little chart on the website to show you how to find it. It's a nice little blue-green colour, and I rather like seeing it. The disc is only 3.7 arc seconds across, so don't expect to see any details. In fact, there virtually aren't any to see anyway, but it's a nice thing to spot. And finally, let's just mention Neptune. Again, you may have read that on July the 11th, Neptune completed one orbit from the night in 1846 when it was discovered. Now, you might think that was the day you would see it in exactly the same place. Well, that's actually not true, because as the Earth orbits the Sun, we see it from different directions. And in fact, Neptune will be passing through that spot in total, or will have passed some of them, about six times. There are two still to go when you can actually see Neptune at the precise location where it was first discovered. One of those is on October the 27th and one on November the 22nd. Again, I put a little chart to show you how to find it, but essentially you have to find the star Delta Capricornus. A little bit to its west, is Gamma Capricornis, and they are both about uh, third to fourth magnitude. If you work from Gamma through Delta and go another five degrees, you come to a star called I Aquarii, and Neptune is just up to the right of that. But again, look at the star chart to find it. You don't see an awful lot. The magnitude is 7.8, so you'll need binoculars or a small telescope. You might just note it's got a disk. It's two and a half arc seconds across, and it's a blue-gray color. But rather nice to think about Neptune having completed one orbit around the sun. Thanks for that, Ian. And here's John Field from the Carter Observatory to tell you what's in the southern night sky this month. Kia ora and welcome to another September broadcasting from Carter Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. September marks the time of the southern spring equinox, which will be on the 23rd. This is when our daylight and nighttime hours are roughly the same. 
Scorpius and Sagittarius are starting a slow slide towards our western horizon and by midnight they will be setting as Orion rises opposite in the east. Following behind Sagittarius are the fainter constellations of Capricornus, Aquarius and Pisces. Many of the constellations in this region have a watery theme and this has been associated with the time of the northern hemisphere's autumn and winter rains. Capricorn means the goat horn and this celestial creature is usually depicted as having a front of a goat and the tail of a fish. Making life more challenging for observers is the fact that this is the second faintest zodiac constellation following Cancer. In the night sky it appears as an elongated triangle resembling a pennant with the tip facing away from Sagittarius. Above the front of the goat is a smaller triangular grouping of stars that marks the goat's head and horns. About 2,500 years ago the sun moved in front of the stars of Capricorn at the time of the northern winter solstice. At a latitude of 23.5 degrees south, the sun is overhead at noon on the day of the summer solstice and that the subsolar position marks the tropic of Capricorn on the Earth's surface. Due to the precessional motion, the sun has now moved into the constellation Sagittarius at the time of the southern summer solstice. Alpha Capricorni is a pretty but unrelated visual double star at magnitudes 3.6 and 4.2, which can be split with the unaided eye and is easily done in binoculars. The Arabic name for the star is Al-Jidi, meaning the kid or billy goat. Beta Capricornis is another pretty double, with a yellow star at magnitude 3.1 and a wide blue companion at magnitude 6, that are visible in binoculars or small telescopes. Both stars are actually multiple star systems. Delta Capricornis, the tail, is actually the brightest star in the constellation at magnitude 2.9 and is approximately 40 light years away from us and consists of four stars. Following Capricornis is the large rambling constellation of Aquarius, supposedly depicting a man pouring water onto the Earth. There are a number of deep sky objects in this constellation that are well worth hunting down. M2 is a fine globular cluster 38,000 light years away and it can be easily seen in binoculars nearby to the third magnitude star Beta Aquarii. This yellow supergiant star is estimated to be 610 light years away. With a magnitude of 6.3, M2 is a difficult naked eye object. It is a good challenge for those with clear dark skies and good eyesight. Small telescopes should be able to resolve individual stars in this cluster. The stars in the cluster have now been dated to approximately 13 billion years old. Some of these are the oldest stars known in our galaxy. To the southwest of Delta Aquarius is NGC 7293, the Helix Nebula. It is the largest and closest planetary nebula at 700 light years away from our solar system. It covers a region of sky equivalent to half the size of the full moon. In reality, though, it covers a region 2.5 light years in diameter. In small telescopes, you should better resolve it as a round circle with a dark centre. Larger telescopes reveal more shape but to see the colours of the nebula, a long exposure photographic image is needed. Another famous planetary nebula is NGC 7009, popularly known as the Saturn Nebula, due to its resemblance to the planet when seen in large telescopes or on photographs. This nebula is close to the star Eta Aquarii. Below Aquarius and northwards towards the bright star Altair, we find a small but distinct constellation called Delphinus. A diamond-shaped group of four stars marking the dolphin's body and above for us here in the southern hemisphere, a flattened triangle of three stars forms the dolphin's tail. Gamma Delphinus, marking the dolphin's nose, is a lovely double star consisting of two golden yellow stars at magnitudes 4.3 and 5.2. Of the 88 constellations in the night sky, Delphinus is 69th in order of size.
The nearby constellations of Sagittarius and Aquarius are 86 and 87 respectively. Crux, the Southern Cross, is the smallest of the 88 constellations in size and is lying on its side in our southwestern sky after sunset. Famous throughout the Southern Hemisphere and visible from southern parts of the Northern Hemisphere, this little constellation can be used to find the South Celestial Pole. If you project a line along the length of the cross from the top, Gamma Crucis to the base, Alpha Crucis, and across the sky, it points towards a bright star called Achenar. The halfway point between Crux and Achenar is close to the South Celestial Pole. Drop this point to the horizon and you'll be facing south. Tonari the cross is Tipanga, the anchor. In Tonga it is Toloa, the duck. An image of the cross has been found at Machu Picchu. In the language of the Inca, the cross is known as Chicana, which means the stair. Near to the cross are the two bright pointer stars Alpha and Beta Centauri. Alpha, the third brightest star in our night sky, is nearby at only 4.3 light years distance. It consists of a bright pairing of two stars that can be split in small telescopes. With a larger telescope, a much fainter red dwarf can be found not far from Alpha Centauri. Called Proxima, it is the closest known star to our solar system. There is much conjecture as to whether this star is gravitationally bound to the larger and brighter pair of stars. Six single stars, two binary star systems and a triple star system share a common motion through space with Proxima Centauri and the Alpha Centauri system. It is possible they form a cluster of stars moving through our nearby region of space. If Proxima Centauri is not orbiting around the Alpha Centauri system, then such a moving cluster would help explain their relative closeness. Our closest star, the Sun, has been less active than normal during its current solar cycle. The Sun follows a reasonably regular 11-year cycle of increasing and decreasing number of sunspots and other activity. Over the past two years, the number of sunspots has been sporadic, about 50% less than predicted, but recently it seems to show signs of increasing activity. Solar activity is associated with the Sun's magnetic field building up, decreasing and flipping in an 11-year cycle. The current idea is that fast-flowing plasma currents under the Sun's surface are impeding the normal cycle. From the best predictions of solar physicists, this current cycle will peak in 2013, but will be weaker than previous cycles. Will this turn out to be true? Only time will tell. In the evening sky, Saturn is setting in the west not long after sunset. Jupiter will be rising in the east after midnight. The Juno spacecraft launch in August 2011 is due to arrive at Jupiter in 2016. This spacecraft will be placed in a polar orbit and will study the planet's magnetic field and composition. Mars will still be low in our morning sky this month. Now is not the best time for viewing Mars as low on our northern horizon. Fortunately, we are no longer dependent on Earth-based observations of Mars. A number of orbiters and rovers have added to our knowledge and continue to send back images and data on the red planet. Late 2011 should see the launch of the Mars Science Laboratory. This large 900kg rover will land in August 2012 and should spend at least one Martian year exploring a crater called Gale. Mercury and Venus will be poorly placed viewing during September. We wish all our listeners clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, John. And that almost brings us to the end of the show. All that's left to do is round up your feedback. And we've had a couple of postcards. Woohoo! Hooray. Unfortunately, one of them was from a jogcaster. Unfortunately. Mm, it's always more fun to get them from the listeners. Libby has spent the last six weeks in Taiwan working with her supervisor, who's now over there. Somehow... She managed to only get the postcard to us after she came back. That's dubious. 
Yeah, but there's a there's a postmark and everything and a stamp. It looks it looks. Is really the queen nice. on it? No, the queen is not on the stamp. <laughs> okay. It's as astronomy as she could get. I think it's of the Sun Moon Lake. Ah. She's been to the Taipei National Astronomy Museum, where not only do they have a planetarium that's amazing, but also a ride. I'm not quite sure what kind of ride you'd have at an astronomy museum. And she finished the day looking at Saturn through the telescope. And Libby, I'm very jealous, but I'm very glad you're back as well. She sounds like she's had a bit too much fun. I'm not sure she really did any work while she、mm. was over there. Well, it's geeky fun. Yeah, I noticed she also didn't date the postcard. That's also suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get her on the next episode and ask her. Okay. The other postcard is from a listener. Whoa! It's from Bill. I really don't know how to pronounce your surname. It's Scooches. Scooches. Or Scooches. Scooches. Oh, Scooches! That's a great name. Who is normally from Lincolnshire, but was at the Kennedy Space Centre and sent us a postcard of the Moon, which is very nice. And he said the Jogcast is excellent. Keep up the good work. And I love those postcards because they make me feel warm and fuzzy inside.、Mm. It is excellent, though. It is. As we said at the beginning of the show, we can't get onto the forum, so we have no feedback from there. But hopefully, it will be up very soon again. However, we did get some comments on Facebook. So thanks to、uh, the fantastically named Trevor Too Good, to Dahiya Mora, Robert Sidi, and Russ Jenkins for your comments. Russ actually said that he liked the seascape sound effects. It made the Jotcast sound like one of those meditation recordings, which I think is fantastic. And he ended that comment with "keep calm and jod on," and "keeping calm and carrying on" was our witty comment last time in reference to the riots. And I can't believe I didn't think to say "keeping calm and jodding on," because、yeah. that would have been even funnier and more obvious when you think about it. Yeah. So thanks, Russ, for pointing that out.、Um, you're wittier than I am. Thank you, as always, to everyone who retweeted us on Twitter and did follow Fridays for us. We've got a few new followers, so hello if you're a new follower and listening. I have to say I'm very impressed by Neil B W, who apparently had a Jogcast Fest one night, which went right through to near enough wake up time in the morning, and then he was really tired. I'm wondering if he was listening to this in his sleep because he says it finished near wake up time, so maybe he was using it as a kind of、um, learning astronomy while you sleep. So he just woke up and went.、Oh, I know everything about yeah, astronomy. Pretty much. Well, I guess we are turning into a meditation recording. Apparently, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, maybe Neil. Can you clarify what do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> Please don't say that Jogcast sends you to sleep because that would make us sad. Unless you carry on listening to it while you're asleep, I guess.、Yeah. No, that would still make us cry. <laughs> <laughs> Now the last bit isn't exactly feedback, or it's kind of visual feedback, I guess.、Um, but at the weekend, I was at a folk festival. Called the Green Man Festival in Wales, and I was actually there doing sort of what Jen's going to be doing at the Science Festival, which is kind of science stand-up. And I ran into a Jogcast alumnus from some of the very old videos, Colin Stewart, that you might remember, and he told me he'd seen someone at the festival wearing a Jogcast T-shirt, and it wasn't me because I wasn't wearing my T-shirt at that point. So I'm wondering who it was. Ooh, mystery. So, if you were at the Green Man Festival in the Brecon Beacons and you were wearing a Jodcast T-shirt, then、um, do let us know. And thanks for promoting the Jodcast. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum, when it works again, 
at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And you can put your photographs for next year's Astronomy Photograph of the Year competition on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And that does bring us to the end of the show. So all that's left to say is thank you to Dr. Martin Bureau, Lena Levin and Dr. Ben Stappers for the interviews. And a huge thank you to TV maths whiz Carol Vorderman for doing the celebrity intro outro this month. I am still in shock that she's done that. She's my favourite TV maths whiz. Yeah. And big thank you also to Lisa Tibbs, uh, wife of jogcaster Chris Tibbs, for sorting that out via Twitter. I'm still, again, confused how that happened. Anything's possible via Twitter. Yes. And Carol Waterman loves astronomy. She does. The editors were Jen Gupta, Megan Argo, Claire Bretherton, Melanie Chandra, and Mark Perver. And the producer was Jen Gupta. So until next time... Jod on! Bye, everyone. This is Carol Vorderman and you've been listening to the Jodcast, the perfect mix of vowels and consonants. <laughs>